Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Well, let's get started. Um, Nancy, you can play with that mouse. This is Rich P. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Mance and Marsha to both introduce themselves. Then uh, my sobriety date is September 28th, 2010, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Mance? I am Mance. I, too, am from Atlanta, Georgia. Some of you saw me earlier on the CFC, so I've had a taste of CIM this evening. And... Uh, <clears throat> I've been in the fellowship here for over 30 years. I claim two years plus uh, of calendar sobriety. But grateful to be here tonight and look forward to uh, sharing the spiritual aspects of our fellowship. And I'm Marsha D. And I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic in Nashville. And my sobriety date is 10-5-2014. Hi, Marcia. Hi, Marcia. So we talked beforehand, and um, we're going to talk about telling your story from a spiritual perspective. And this whole notion of how we stumbled upon this idea um, came from the the Cesare region, the South, the SA Southeast Regional Assembly. And uh, Marcia, Mance, and I were part of a planning team for our region to host its first spiritual retreat. And in that spiritual retreat, we um, we had a great time planning it. It was a really bonding experience for all of us. But we um, wanted it to be a different experience than maybe what we've experienced at other conventions or retreats. And we stumbled upon this idea of telling our story from a spiritual perspective. And I always like to say, like, we, we don't ever want to reinvent or, I'm sorry, come up with anything new. We just need to focus on the literature and when you dive deep into the white book from our founder, um, there's this whole section that begins on page 49 called The Spiritual Process. And um, you know, our founder has sort of laid out, he refers to them as elements. And there's almost eight elements that um, he describes about. It's really the spiritual slide or the spiritual like decline. And it really resonated with me so, so well. And we talked a lot about this at our spiritual retreat, and we've learned to write our stories sort of from the spiritual lens. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try to be as as brief as I can because I want to get through the content, and I'll try to align parts of my story to the spiritual part that that is laid out in the white book. And then we'll have Marcia tell her story from a spiritual perspective, how she learned to do that at the retreat, and then Mance will also tell his story from the spiritual perspective. (laughs) 
So, are, are you all seeing uh, Rich on your screen? I'm only seeing Marsha. Yes, that's how it works. Okay, great. Well, then I'm going to continue. Um, so, um, as I said, my name is Rich P, and I'm going to walk through these eight elements of the spiritual process that Roy talks about. And this is so critical because um, basically if, if, if lust is a spiritual problem, and, and that's in the white book, then of course recovery must be a spiritual process. And this sort of inc- incredible eight elements that Roy lays out opens up to us. And when I started to apply it to my, my past, it really just rung true. And I'm going to talk about that really quick. So the first stage or element that Roy talks about is this notion of an attitude change. And, and in everything I'm going to talk about, it's almost inevitable to, to not see like my hand in, in, in the creation of my lust problem. That's sometimes a hard pill for, for me to swallow and for people to hear, but in, um, I have to claim responsibility for how I set conditions up to that led to me um, and, and my lustaholic problem. So the first idea that Roy lays out is this notion of an attitude change, and that sets the course for our addiction. Um, and um, basically for me, it was rooted in a long history of um, sexual abuse by a, a clergy and by a, a, a uncle, um, five years each, and they overlapped. And basically... Um, the attitude change, of course, you know, introducing sex early to kids shifts them. And this shifted my internal sort of disposition and my internal, my internal sense. And it, it set me against God. It set me not only against God, but it set me against um, my parents. It set, set me against people that were in authority over me and that people that should be safe. But it told me that God isn't safe. It told me that God violates my will. It tells me that um, God distorts and God takes and God is not safe. Now, I know today that's a lie, but at an early age when that that message gets implanted and rooted in you, it set the course for my, uh, for my spiritual malady and my, my, my lust problem. So um, basically, it's a spiritual attitude that really was driving my sexualizing and my sexaholism. Um, The second uh, element that Roy then lays out is there's this decision to persist in wrong. And um, and I can relate to that. Like when I did my amends in that say, I had to make an amends. Finally, the last amends I was able to make was to my uncle and to this clergy member because this decision to persist in wrong, I use that as like a badge to act out and as a reason to act out. And I could never admit that until I did the steps and, and I did them with the clarity of, of, of essay and with an essay sponsor, and my sponsor sitting here with me. But, um, you know, it set a wrong attitude, uh, a continued wrong attitude in me against God, against my parents, against authority. It also led to dissociation and separation. And that just sort of, um, I used it as a way to protect me, but it really did move me away from God consciousness, which is, I think, how I believe I was designed to be, and it moved me really towards a self-consciousness and an extreme focus on self. I'm going to keep us moving because um, I want to make sure I have time for Mance and Marsha. 
The next element that Roy talks about is this notion of guilt and punishment. And he uses incredible words in this. And he talks about we defile and we punish ourselves. He says, for every wrong, there is a a reaction in us that negates life. And I can connect that to my lusting because in my lusting in my teen years, in my early 20s, I kind of felt that, that you know, and Roy uses this language of the spirit of lust and the spirit of lust really attracts, right? Um, And it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual attitude that I then, you know, I still had some sense that it was wrong, but I fed it and I, I I fed the, you know, the, the, I fed that beast and I, I felt like I was powerless over feeding it, but I still knew what I was doing and I could just feel it turning me. So I punished myself in that respect. Um, I'm going to keep going. Um, The fourth element that Roy talks about is this idea of self-obsession. And he said a rebellious attitude sets in and we become obsessed with ourselves in, in a negative spiritual attitude and, and in a force that leads us to spiritual blindness. Um, basically, I became the source of my own life and I became my own God. So in my 20s, as my lusting purposely took hold, I became completely obsessed with myself. You know, in the solution in the white book where it says we turn more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self and God to others. Well, I miss the God and others. I miss that part completely. And the isolating obsession with sex, sex and self ruled the day and ruled my life. And um, I completely felt like I gave myself over to the spirit of lust. It dominated everything I did from the smallest decisions about what, um, I always use this example, what aisle I would go down at the grocery store to where, what city I decided to live in that would give me more access to lust. Like that is how lust started to permeate my life and, and um, where I began to see that I was a slave to lust and that juggernaut of self-will set in. The fifth element that Roy talks about that appealed to me is this notion of separation. And here he says we lose ourselves or we isolate ourselves um, from, from, from others from God, but here's the game changer, but also from ourself. And we become completely disconnected from all three of these elements. And um, it's this notion of splitting. He, he uses some language that says we move farther and farther from that part of ourself that has the light until we may finally lose it. We push the light or the truth about ourselves and others farther and farther away until finally, when none gets through the shield of self-will, darkness descends. And that's a very scary place to be in. This really resonated with me in my recovery because this is when I started, I stopped feeling guilty when I acted out to starting to feel numb when I acted out. Um, my, my acting out had taken me to a place of not having any remorse anymore, not having any more guilt. And I really pushed God off the table. Like, and it's easy to act out in my experience when God is not on the table, when he's far away from me. Um, and that opens up a very dark and dangerous world too, then because in lust, anything becomes possible and I can rationalize and justify everything. Um, in this description of the elements, the sixth element that Roy talks about is a blindness and a delusion. And really I I was deluded and I was deluding myself. It's that whole notion of insanity that we talk about in recovery. But Roy uses this term called pride blindness. And he says, in pride blindness, there's an inability to see ourself as we really are. And for me, what is wrong became right because we are doing it. So in many ways, I told myself, well, 
this must be right, God must be wrong, and if this is right, what else is right? Like, what else could out there could be right? And it took me to the, the real extremes of what I just like to use in recovery to say is really dark behaviors, really dark behaviors and acting out. And um, there, there, nothing was off limits for me. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. The seventh element that Roy talks about is the negative connection. And to me, this is where it gets really scary, I think. He uses this notion about the person drive, and he says the person drive has to have union with another and connection. Um, but we somehow cross it and we cross the, we, we crisscross the personal with sort of sexual to satisfy the spiritual is very deep. And I, I, I need to sit and sometimes absorb these very deep spiritual statements, but they, they really re- resonate with me because he talks about using sex, lust and relationships to satisfy, satisfy this drive. But what we, what I did and what he talks about is I, I let them take the place of God as the source of my life. And in, in many respects, this is a notion of idolatry. So I start plugging into the negative connection. No longer am I plugged into the spirit of life and the, for me, like the creator, I'm plugged into the, the negative connection, which is this whole section talks about. And this is where my, um, my lusts are to become predatory and extremely violent and wanting to really hurt people before they hurt me and to really take advantage of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, which is not a surprise, this final element or stage that Roy talks about is spiritual death. And really clearly he says here that we destroy ourselves. Um, we are damned to a condition where the truth about ourselves cannot penetrate and it's spiritual death. Um, and again, that's my experience. Um, I sort of um, hit that notion of what the big book says about pitiful and comprehensible demoralization when everything was gone. Now, that's the story of lust. And I don't want to just leave on the negative piece. And I don't have time to tell my full spiritual like recovery story. But the, the glimmer of hope here is that God never stops pursuing. And every once in a while, there would be these little glimmers of light that would cut through, right? And I would, I would have a chance to see them. And in one of these glimmers of light, I had this chance to um, say what I call a willingness prayer. And um, I meant it when I said it. And I said, God, just do whatever it takes to give me a shot at finding you. And I meant take all those idols I was holding up in the, the negative connection. And I asked God to take them all. And, um, and then that, 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 that glimmer of light closed and I went back to acting out. But two weeks to the day of me saying that prayer, like the God I know now, which is not the God I knew then, so incredibly faithful. And he brought, um, he brought the change for me because I invited them in and I gave him permission. And so basically what happened is I had a significant consequence delivered to my life. And I can honestly say in recovery and with sober eyes, it was the best day of my life because it opened up an opportunity for me to get back to God and to have a connection with the source of my life and and who he really is. Um, And I'll tell the one last story. So the, the gentleman that sits next to me, um, when I raised my hand at that recovery meeting for looking for a sponsor, he didn't raise his hand. And um, I went up to him afterwards and I said, so I, I really need a sponsor. I had knew this man. And um, I, I, you know, he, he said, I don't, I, I didn't raise my hand today. Cause I'm, I let the spirit, I let God lead people to me that I should sponsor. And these words always gets me, but I said, I didn't know any better. I said, 
is this that is is this god leading you know me to you because i don't know who god is i can't trust god god is not safe to me and um that line of is is this that is this god and um it truly was god speaking to me and there's a line in the white book that i love so much i think it could be my favorite line and it says god is surely for the sexaholic God was for me all along. I didn't know it. And he made a way for me to come back to him through this program and through the gentleman that sits next to me. And um, that's the glimmer of my spiritual story. Um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Marsha. Thanks, Rich. There we go. Hi, I'm Marsha D. And I'm a grateful, sober sexaholic. And I'm going to tell my spiritual story in the way we laid out. We laid our stories out um, at the spiritual retreat. Um, Before I do that, I just want to talk a little bit about that process. Um, We were very careful to set up the spiritual retreat to be spiritual, not religious. And as a result of that, we all experienced just a greater unity and connection with each other. Um, It removes the the barriers and the... um, unknown prejudices that we have against other religions that, you know, my religion is the religion or the best religion. And when we remove all of that religious talk and just say our stories from the spiritual uh, perspective, it was amazing how similar they, they all were Um, that God can reach out or our higher power can reach out in all these different ways to pull people to a connection. So, um, So I'll begin my story um, and how uh, we learned to tell them at our retreat. So what it was like before recovery, what my spirituality was like. Um, My parents were active in a religion, and we were always present in that building and put on this um, appearance of being perfect, happy, and smiling Um, My sister and I would get scolded if we weren't appearing to be happy and smiling. And I did enjoy the social part of our youth groups, and um, I put on a religious face, but there was no spirituality. It was just, it was an emptiness, um, although it could be fun at times. And in our home, we didn't practice anything that we learned at our um, religious institution. We didn't pray at home. My parents never spoke of God or spirituality or any kind of connection. And I had a a really lonely, neglective, and abusive childhood that looked just very different from that of my friends. My experiences didn't match up with theirs. And so from, from that connection that we had with our religion and what I saw in other people's lives, I believed that there was a God and that God did good things in people's lives but he wasn't interested in me. And it took a long time before I ever felt that way. I always felt on the outside, seeing things in other people's lives and, and seeing like abuse in, in my own life. And that just, it just removed something for me. I, it put up a barrier that I couldn't ever have a spiritual experience. So one I uh, grew up and I got married. I joined my husband's religion. I changed religions. 
And I tried my best in there. I did a lot of service. I went to all their classes to convert. Um, but I was not allowed to become a full member of that church for reasons beyond my control. There was nothing they told me. There was nothing I could do to ever be a full member of that church because of my husband and, and something that he was not willing to do. So again, I felt that God was for everybody else. And I was just excluded. And it didn't matter how many good things I did, um, how much I participated, how much my children were fully involved in that church and went to the school with that church. I was always on the outside. So I really believed I could never be good enough to be loved by God. And I still was putting on this mask of perfection um, that I thought was required to be loved by people. But I became increasingly more lonely and disconnected and just lost. Um, and, you know, as that, as that disconnection grew, my acting out grew. Until when, I, when, I, when my life fell apart and my first um, session with a therapist, you know, he asked me, why, why are you here to see me today? And, you know, there are a lot of things in my life that I could have said, but the thing that came out of my mouth first was that I'm dead inside. That was my reason for seeking out therapy. I felt like I was dead inside. And so what happened for me is I, I did begin going to SA, um, pursued therapy, um, eventually stopped acting out, and that left kind of a vacuum in my life. Um, acting out requires quite a bit of time. So um, I started taking up uh, different hobbies. I was trying to find something else to fill my time that was more worthwhile. And I found that I really liked hiking. I really liked being in the woods. I would go off the trails to find places in the woods to just sit and be alone. And um, on a few of those trips, I felt not alone. I could feel something in the woods, not another creature, but like something bigger. And so I, I started feeling like I had to get to the woods every day. I was um, trying, it was really difficult. I lived in the city. I lived in Nashville and it would be about a 30 minute drive to get out to the woods. And I finally said, I've got to have this in my life every day. This connection I'm feeling out here, I don't know if it's God, if it's the spirit of the universe, but I have to have that every day. So I was in the middle of a divorce and it was, we were going to sell the house anyway. Um, we put the house up for sale and I started looking for a home with some woods, which I found. And, you know, at the time I thought, okay, I have this, I've, I've, got this. I've grabbed it. It's mine now. <laughs> I have my own woods and that's where this feeling of connection is. It took me quite a few years after that to, to find that that connection I was feeling in the woods is really available to me everywhere all the time. But in the beginning, I didn't know that. And even today, when I feel like I can't connect or I feel lost, I'll go, I'll go out and sit in the woods for a while because that it, it never fails. Like I just reconnect in nature with something bigger than myself. So the other things of what happened, um, you know, I have 
wounds that are um, just wounds of fear and abandonment. And all of my acting out was driven by that fear, Um, the fear that I would be abandoned, that if I didn't do things that uh, kept people around was either, you know, you know, a chameleon. I, I did, I was what people wanted me to be. And that was how I took control and, and kept, kept people from abandoning me. Um, so, but there's no trust in that. It was always me controlling everything to try to prevent people from leaving me. So to let go of that and just, just trust people. I learned that in the program. Um, it took a long time, you know, the first year in the program, I would show up at meetings and say, I'm sober today. And <laughs> not mentioning that I acted out the day before, or I was planning to act out after the meeting. I would just say, I'm sober today. And it took a year in this women's meeting before I finally opened it up and told them the truth of what was going on. And the response I expected was for them to tell me you need to leave because you're going to make the rest of us sick. And that's not the the response I got. I got so much love and deeper connection with these women. And I just, I couldn't believe they still wanted me to be around. And that was, that was a spiritual experience for me that they loved me, not just in spite of all I had done, but they, they could see me. They could see something deeper in me that I didn't even know was there. And they saw value in me. Um, the next thing I want to talk about um, is meditation. So I'm, I'm a lifelong meditator. I learned to meditate in college. And before recovery, uh, I used meditation as an escape. It was, it was an escape for me, similar like acting out was. I could meditate and go to another place and um, just disappear from my life. But it wasn't any kind of connection. And it was really surprising to me how my meditation changed after working the steps. So I worked the steps. I cleared away the wreckage of my past. And then as a result of working the steps, I found this spiritual connection in meditation so now when I meditate, it is, it's more like a wordless prayer. It's a quieting and opening myself up and then receiving something in return. And that's so different from what my meditation was before recovery. And I'm so glad to have found that. Um, because although, you know, meditating as an escape was a better escape than acting out sexually, it still was not as rewarding as meditation is today. And so a little bit about um, just where my spirituality has led me over the last few years. Um, I've tried to find a religious home. I've I've visited many different faiths and different practices, some of them Christian, some of them otherwise. And, I've not yet found a spiritual community that feels like I fit other than SA. SA is spiritual to me. Every meeting I go to, I feel connection with people. And I believe, you know, my higher power speaks to me through people. So 
I had a lot of guilt about that for several, for many years. I had to let go of that guilt of not participating in a weekly religious ritual and just let God lead me where he would have me. And I, I have found a spiritual mentor. I've, uh, I continue to study religions of the world. They're fascinating to me. My interest is mostly about how different people get to a spiritual connection in many different ways. Um, like to just think about how our higher power can reach out and just pull people to them in the way that they can hear. And I just think that's amazing. We don't have to be the same to have a spiritual experience. And I've learned that underneath all these different practices, the basis of all religion, as I have seen it, is to lose ourselves to find a deeper connection with a higher power. And that's, that's really what has, has happened for me, is to lose myself and connect with something greater than me. And so the next part is what it's like now. So today or this year, really, um, uh, one of my defects is that I'm just, I'm more comfortable helping others than accepting help for myself. And that's my need to be in control. And this year has been a really difficult year for me, for my family. We've had multiple deaths, uh, serious health concerns. My mother almost died. My husband was very seriously ill. And, and right now, my son is very ill. And it's been, it's been such a struggle and, and also a learning process for me to just trust. Like every day, I have to bring myself back to right now. Like right this minute, all my needs are met. All my son's needs are met. My family, right this minute, is okay and not think about tomorrow or next week or a year from now, right this minute, our needs have been met. And I've also had to ask for help and to be completely powerless again, to, like I was on, you know, when I was getting sober, I was just so powerless and completely dependent on others to help me stay sober. I feel that way about staying, uh, you know, like emotionally sober today. I have to call people a lot during the day and just tell them I'm full of fear. I'm so full of fear. Please tell me that you believe that we're going to be okay. And it's a very vulnerable and painful place for me to be. But what I've seen is that our needs have been consistently met and people have shown up in my life in different ways um, to just show me like I can see that a higher power is working through others to get us what we need. And, and it's really a miracle that I can just receive that love and support, you know, before recovery, I would have just turned people away and said, no, we're fine. You know, that, that, that surface of perfection that we don't need anyone. We're going to be fine. I, I've had to throw all that out. I don't want to live that way anymore. And I've let others help me and bring me, um, comfort when I need it. And so finally, I'll wrap up. But, you know, today I have this deep connection with a higher power that I call God. And in times of doubt that is there a God, I just call it the spirit of the universe. Uh, You know, the label doesn't matter to me. It's that I have this connection. 
I can feel this loving presence everywhere. It's not just in the woods anymore. But anytime I can feel it, I just have to quiet myself and look within. I have a spiritual practice, and I'm opening to joining a spiritual community other than SA if I'm led there. I just live, try to live a life that is aligned with the will of God as it's interpreted by me. And when I fail at that, um, I can pray and ask for guidance. And it's such a better way to live. I feel so much more peace. Even through this difficult year, Like I've been able to take comfort and see that when I get out of the way, God can do really amazing work and um, just bring about a lot of healing in my family. So that's my story, and I will... Now turn uh, this over to Mance to tell his story. You don't have to do anything, Mance. I've already put you on the video. Oh, okay. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank uh, you, Marsha, for your story, and uh, I thank Rich. Uh, One thing I am deeply indebted to is uh, that section of the White Book that Rich had chosen to uh, share with us. I know I've read that many times, and early in my recovery, uh, I really didn't connect with it. And there's still times I will read a passage in there. But uh, I think it is profound, and uh, what I would encourage anyone to, you know, get a group together, read that, and study it, because there's a lot of implications in there uh, about our past, and some of them are still issues that uh, haunt us. One thing Roy talks a lot about in there is how our uh, attitudes, which many of them are formed very early in life, shape us and uh just being aware of that is uh is important and uh i'm grateful that uh, you know we focused on that in this retreat that uh, rich and uh, marcia have spoken about i just want to share with you uh sort of a, a brief view of um, my story and uh, i'll try to integrate into that uh spiritual aspects that we've been talking about. Uh, Just uh, who I am is I'm currently 79 years old. I've been married to the same woman for 50 years. We have two adult daughters and uh, two grandchildren. Uh, And I personally have been active in sex addiction recovery for just over 30 years Uh, As I mentioned earlier, uh, I did uh, choose to reset my sobriety about two years ago, which was not an incident with someone else, but it was uh, uh, with myself. But uh, uh, there's that phrase in the sobriety definition at the end of the white book that Roy talks about, more important than mere calendar sobriety is its quality and our personal integrity, which uh, really has struck me of, uh, you know, I've got to uh, be true to myself and, uh, you know, live 
consistent with what we're talking about, but uh, don't get hung up on trophies and uh, that type thing, which I have in the past. Um, I was brought up in New England in a small town uh, where I lived uh, most of my early years. Uh, My parents both attended church. It was a conservative family. And, uh, you know, I I never had experience with any family member who was struggling with addiction or alcohol or anything. Uh, However, uh, early on, I had a lot of... uh, curiosity about sexual uh, matters, uh, more so uh, in farm life, because a lot of my friends lived on farms, and uh, uh, that carried on as I got older and then spread more into uh, uh, people as well. Uh, I did, uh, I don't remember a conversation with my father, but it was things I heard from friends and in church that I knew that uh, sexual behavior with someone else was not the thing to be doing. And uh, uh, I, you know, held that a lot and uh, I wanted to do what was right. But uh, I did uh, have a couple of encounters in my teen years with uh, some male classmates in my school. And uh, I know I would often think of it that I knew that it was absolutely wrong to uh, have a sexual encounter with a woman uh, because she might get pregnant. But uh, somehow I concluded that, uh, you know, if I had sex with another guy, that wasn't a problem. Uh, which showed something about my understanding of what was right and wrong in those days. Uh, But uh, out of that, though, I I began to realize that I had to be very careful and uh, uh, anything that was sexual at all in my life, I had to keep a secret and never tell that to anybody. And that produced guilt and shame in my life as well. But I was, uh, as time went on, and it was more not in my early years, but as I got um, some in my teen years and some after college, got more involved in my church, uh, took on a number of leadership roles in the church. I taught a Sunday school class, and uh, you know I felt I was respected by people, but uh, I didn't have a close, intimate relationship with God as I understood him, and uh you know, I felt that, you know, I was doing the right thing and it was more of an intellectual understanding. But I never really uh, was able to see that as clearly as I just indicated until farther on in my life. Uh, I lived a double life, though, uh, starting at that early point. And uh, I know an example would be uh, I would go to a church meeting from home in the evening and I would be leading the meeting and I would try to hurry up the meeting and close it. And then I would often go and act out, get home late. And my wife would wonder why I was late. And I'd tell her the meeting ran late. And I had no problem, you know, saying that. But yet, uh, you know, that obviously. And some of that ties back into what we were talking about in the White Book, where it talks about the non-religious spiritual element and how that can have good and evil involved in it, which, you know, is 
somewhat difficult to get your arms around, but I can see it in some of the crazy things I was doing, uh, showed every aspect of that. <clears throat> but then uh, uh, into recovery, uh, I got to the point where uh, I was, won't tell all of this, we'd have to be here all night, but uh, uh, I was about... Uh, in my mid-40s, and uh, we had children at that point in time who were in their early teens, and I was still active in my addiction. I would set boundaries around it where generally I would choose uh, not to get engaged in any activity unless I was out of town. And when I had business travel involved, I would look for uh, dark places to go there. And it became progressive uh, as that went on and on. And uh, one example I want to show with you of, uh, I want to talk a bit about what I can see today that I didn't see, you know, years ago as I was involved in some of my darker moments. But uh, when I was in high school, uh, some friends of mine, wanted to go over to for a weekend at a Christian camp that was over in New York State. I grew up in Vermont. It wasn't terribly far from where we lived. Uh, and we went there and, uh, you know, it was basically just checking out the place and so on. They did weekly camps and so on. But they did uh, have like a Saturday evening worship service in a big uh, auditorium that they had. And there was... Um, a man that uh, sung that night, and uh, I didn't know anything about him, but as I learned later, uh, he was a talented uh, soloist that performed in the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City, and he wrote the hymn, which many uh, of you may be aware of, How Great Thou Art, that is sung in many churches, and it's sung outside of churches. But uh, it really took the house down, in my perspective. I'd never heard anything as profound. The message cut deep into my heart. And uh, I've reflected on that many times throughout my life. And that was a moment where God was by my side, squeezed my hand. And uh, that's one of those where, you know, if I were to... Uh, look at what God would think of me. I would think he should stay far away from me in a place like that. And he was right there. Um, And um, then uh, I want to share another story that uh, ties in with uh, some of what we're dealing with in a broader case. And this was in one of my darkest days uh, in my addiction. And uh, I had picked up a potential acting out partner, uh, and I was coming home from a business trip. And uh, I had not gone far at all from where I picked him up, and something just didn't feel right. I don't even think we had any conversation. But uh, I decided I needed to drop him off, and I made up some excuse of why I needed to do that. And... uh, circled around, and I hadn't gone far at all because some of this was more in a resident, residential-type area, so I wasn't out on some major highway. 
and I was pulling up to drop him off. And just before I got to that point, there's blue lights flashing behind me. It was the police. I believe they had been following me all the way. I believe they knew who he was and what he was up to. And uh, uh, there were two officers in the car. One of them took him, and I saw nothing more of that. The other one came up to the window and talked with me. I told them that, uh, you know, I thought the person was just looking for a ride and realized they weren't and dropped them off. If they were following me, they would have to believe that uh, I didn't stop anywhere and uh, uh, didn't even shake his hand. But uh, that really got my attention because, uh, first of all, when I saw the blue lights, I figured my gig is up. Uh, My picture is going to be on the paper in the morning, and I've lost my job. Uh, Anyway, I went on home, and uh, my wife... Uh, was working at that time. The kids were in school. I felt terrible in every aspect, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, you cut it, and uh, stayed home from work that day. And I had a flashback, a flashback to an article I had seen in the newspaper, which turned out had been two years prior. And uh, it had caught my attention then. The, uh, the title of that article was uh, some sexual behavior viewed as an addiction. And uh, I had read it the two years before and knew, you know, I probably need to be reading something of this and understanding more about it. It referenced a number of uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, people in uh, medical school who had been researching some of this. And uh, it was clearly the hand of God telling me, man, get in touch with these people. It mentioned the name of several in there. Patrick Carnes is one that I learned to know who he was. The others uh, I never did recognize. Uh, And, of course, then there was no Internet. The only way to ever find out, you know, how to get in touch with somebody used to be, you know, we called information on the phone. And I tried that and gave her the name of three or four different people that were listed in their location. And uh, operative said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And then I said, I've got one more if you could try. And she looked up and gave me a number. I called it. A woman answered the phone. She was, I think I could pin this down. Uh, she was head of a uh, sexual uh, discovery in a um, in a uh, university hospital was what her position was. Uh, but I, I mentioned the article to her, and uh, uh, she and she said, "How did you get this number?" And I told her. She said, "That's impossible. No one has that number." I was starstruck at that moment. She said, wait a minute. She said, "Uh, if you'll, uh, she said, I've got to go. But she said, wait five minutes and I'm going to give you a number to call. And she said, I'll send you some material. And I called. They sent me at that point in time, a copy of Patrick Carnes out of the shadows. There was another book uh, that um, SLAA has used. 
and there was some other literature. And that led the way, uh, with a little more difficulty on my part, to find there were groups that helped people with my condition. And uh, I didn't find SA then. This group uh, was sort of a hodgepodge of people that uh, at that point in time, many people were struggling from uh, AIDS. And there were some in that early group that I met. Uh, but uh, that got me on the path to recovery. And uh, I remember uh, working together with um, uh, a few other people in their home on a Wednesday night. We had a uh, copy of a draft of Patrick Carnes' A Gentle Path Through the Twelve Steps. That was a lifeline at that point in time. About uh, two and a half years later, uh, because of the uh, change in my job situation, I was going to be relocating. And uh, at that time, I moved into where I'm currently living and found there were a number of, uh, of groups dealing with sex addiction. And that ultimately got me into, uh, uh, into SA. Uh, these are occasions that I've told where there was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that there was a God who loved me, who had been following me, and who sort of changed the layout of the chairs in the room, and uh, I found recovery out of that. Uh, one of the uh, things that has always meant a lot to me, but there's two phrases, one in the section that Rich had read, which deals with uh, addiction on page 50, at the bottom of that uh, is the statement, we are what we think. And that is relevant back in the context of what Rich had shared and read. It's as relevant for somebody who's been in the program 30 years. And uh, I'm always coaching my sponsees of monitor what goes on in your head because that means so much. And Struggling with lust, there's always things that want to distract us, but we've got a God who wants our total attention, and uh, that's been a lifesaver for me. Uh, but I want to say that uh, uh, reviewing this material that we've been talking about and sharing this with others uh, has been such a benefit to me and uh, has brought me to see a true connection with the God of my understanding and uh, to have a closer relationship with him. And I'm glad we could share this with you tonight. And uh, I don't know where we go from here. But. This is Rich. I might say one thing. So for anyone who wants to learn how to tell their story from a spiritual perspective, the Southeast region will be hosting another spiritual retreat this coming May. I see Marsha and Man smiling. It's May 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and I'll be in Covington, Georgia. If you're interested in attending, reach out to us. If you can't afford it, we'll find a way. Thanks, Rich and Mance. We have a few questions. Um, I love, I just, it's such a privilege to be able to hear men's stories, and especially when they tell it with such emotion, like I, I honestly believe men didn't have feelings before mm-hmm. coming to SA. And it's just a privilege to be able to hear your stories and, and see the emotion and know like we 
feel things to the same depth. We're all humans. It doesn't matter. We're all female. Um, there are a few questions. Um, so Jacob in New Jersey um, says, "What is your practice in the woods? What is your are you What is your meditation to God? Are you talking and praying, or more quiet and listening?" Um, so my meditation is um, it can be a lot of different things. Really, it, it depends on what I need at the time, um, but. When I go out in the woods, um, it's usually a quiet, a quieting. I like to just sit and become still. Um, if my mind is really active, sometimes I'll do like a breathing meditation where um, I'll be really conscious of my in-breath and out-breath. And as thoughts come in, I just kind of send them on their way to, so I can get to a really still place inside and not be caught up in my thoughts. And then... When I get quiet, it's more of a waiting and receiving. Um, I'm just sitting there, inviting the connection and waiting for for it to come. Um, Mance or, or Rich, do either of you have a comment on any meditation practices that you have? I don't. I'm not a great <clears throat> meditator. Uh, I like your context of walking in the woods. Uh, I enjoy doing that very much because uh, it brings me in touch with nature of seeing you know, the birds, the squirrels. Often, you know, you may see a deer or something of that nature. Uh, and being in touch, it's so di- such a contrast from, you know, the world we live in of being caught in traffic jams and traffic lights and people cutting you off and all that kind of thing. Uh, the woods and nature are, are very nurturing for me. The only thing I would add is, uh, it echoes what you said, Marcia, about the stillness and the quiet. I have experienced God moves in the quiet and he moves for me in the waiting. And in meditation, I get to slow down and listen instead of uh, jabbering, jammering. And I just get to be, I get to slow down and be, be present and I get to listen for God. Mm-hmm. I was recently at a uh, retreat, and uh, when we've done that before, on a Sunday morning, we always do a um, sort of a worship service. And this one, this time, uh, which probably went on close to an hour, and the people who had put it together, uh, it was spiritual readings interspersed with music. And the music was all recorded music, and they had done a handout in advance of uh, all of the script of the music and uh, the readings as well. And the reading, readings were actually done around the group. We were in a big circle, and everybody would say, read a verse of that. And it was so touching, but they'd done it well to integrate the music into the um, uh, the um, readings. And... Uh, I wish I could just do that every Sunday, but it was so enriching. Now, uh, you know, it was on the heels of having been uh, shoulder to shoulder with these people for the whole weekend. So, uh, you know, we developed an atmosphere, but it was very rich. Thank you. Um, There's one more question from Emmanuel said, uh, can you elaborate on the difference in meditation, the new way, as opposed to meditation, the old way? 
Can you give a brief practical guide on how you carry out your meditation? And he indicated that question was for me. Um, so, yeah, I had talked about that, you know, I'm a lifelong meditator, but it was so different after recovery. But the actual way that I begin a meditation didn't change. Like my practice didn't change. It's that this barrier was somehow removed through working the steps to open me up to have a connection. So I still meditate where I quiet my mind, um, get to a place of stillness. And before recovery, that would be it. It would be a place of stillness and just kind of an out-of-body feeling. But now, after I get to the place of stillness, I receive something. I get... I get this connection. I am not alone. And it's a feeling of love. Um, so that's that's the big difference for me. Um, we just had a couple other comments. And uh, let's see, what do we have here? From Jacob M., you mentioned that you reset your sobriety. I think this is for Mance. Can you talk about not beating yourself up from that? And in general, in your program, how to take it easy on yourself and not be too hard? Uh, that one occurred. It was a unique experience because the following morning, uh, which was totally unrelated but prearranged, uh, I was with two very close friends of mine driving to a retreat. And I forget, it was probably a weekend retreat. And so I shared all of that with them. And uh, we were able to talk about it. We probably had three or four hours in a car. And that was such a rich experience uh, and gave me a lot of strength because I didn't need to be at home alone by myself pondering, you know, where I was at. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing came up when you were uh, just recently talking about meditations of uh, what has been so meaningful to me as my recovery has progressed is the connection, and you know in our uh, uh, closing, what is the thing? A vision for you. Making the real connection, we were home. A vision for you. Yeah. But, uh, and then the, uh, you know, recent meditation book, as they came out with the 365 one, is called The Real Connection. But the, the connection that I have today with my God in daily meditation, devotions and meditation and with it's not everybody in the program I love all of them but having some close friends who really know all about me and I can talk with them about whatever comes up that's worth gold Mm -hmm. thank you man